Hello, thank you for joining us. This is the Friendly Reminder Podcast. It's your weekly friendly reminder of what's going on in our lives around the world and everything in between. Today is September the 10th, and my name is Gus, and as always, I'll be your host for the evening. I do have, as always, my two dear friends with me. Uh, Introducing first, Daniel, how are you today? Good, Gus. How are you? Doing pretty good. Lots to cover today as usual. And Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Anxious to get started. As always. So yeah, let's get started, guys, because, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, uh, but it still bears repeating that COVID-19 is still a threat. Um, You know, even now in September, we're still getting about 30,000 new cases a day. Uh, We still get over 1,000 newly reported deaths, unfortunately, pretty much every single day. We are over 6 million infected throughout, you know, since the pandemic started here in America. Uh, And sadly, very sadly, over 190,000 deaths. And it's pretty much uh, inevitable that we're going to reach that grim uh, milestone of over 200,000 Americans dead. Um, So, you know, schools are opening back up. Football's starting again. I mean, we, 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 we still are insistent on getting this show on the road, but it's a very clear reminder that this, this, this is a very, still a very active virus. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because, as I'm sure many have heard, um, the most recent um, event on the news right now is uh, some recordings uh, uh, from an interview, several interviews, in fact, I believe 18 interviews in total between the President of the United States, Donald Trump, and a very famous reporter, journalist, uh, Bob of what the Washington Post, uh, Bob Woodward, where... Yeah, he very smartly decided to talk 18 separate times to Bob Woodward on the phone, on the record, and let him record uh, him. So. Yeah, I'm wondering the thought process about that because you know, this is Bob Woodward. For for those not familiar with Bob Woodward, he he was uh, um, very much involved in the Watergate scandal back in the '60s. Uh, he was played by, I believe, Robert Redford in All the President's Men, a very famous uh, movie. In um, I believe in the that was done in the '80s. It was Robert Redford 70s. and Dustin yeah. Hoffman in the '70s. Um, a very famous journalist, a very famous investigative reporter, and somehow Donald Trump just decided to call him up and just be like, hey, Bobby, get a lot of this shit. He wrote books on, he wrote books critical of Obama, he wrote books critical of the Bush administration, and he also wrote a book called Fear about the Trump administration, which made Trump look like a jackass. So I'm not yeah. sure why... I mean, what doesn't make Trump look like a jackass is my question. Trump is a Fox News viewer, so he thinks that he's a brilliant genius. So he thinks that when he gets on the phone with Bob Woodward, he's just going to be able to explain everything away. Um, And he's also used to just not really caring about consistency at all, which is another reason why he gets on the phone and just starts talking about how COVID is much worse. (laughs) He gets on the phone and he starts talking about how COVID is much more contagious and, and and five times deadlier than the flu, at least five times deadlier than the worst flus. He says it's bad. It doesn't just hurt old people. It hurts, hurts kids. Meanwhile, you know, and people have cut these together. He's going out there and he's saying the exact opposite out in the, um, to the public. He's just lying. Yeah, and he's and saying we, this isn't a threat. It's going to disappear soon. 
Yeah, and we should note that these uh, interviews took place a while ago, um, before the pandemic really took hold um, here in America. In fact, one of them is from February the 7th. Uh, another one, I believe, is from March the 19th. So this is Donald Trump being fully aware of what this virus was capable of and, and uh, the pain and damage and deaths and suffering that it was capable of well before any any of this started and well before we all started essentially living our lives from home. News organizations are still trying to piece this stuff together, um, but I have seen some crazy contrasts, like on the 7th uh, Trump gets on the phone, and again, this is recorded, so you can't call it fake news, blah, 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 mm. gets on the phone with Woodward and tells him that uh, the virus is airborne, worse than the flu, five times as deadly, more contagious. Um, and so that conversation takes place on the 7th. Uh, from the 10th of February to March the 2nd, Trump holds five different rallies. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right following that with thousands of people in confined spaces, no masks, no social distancing, anything like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even after these, um, at least the, the February 7th interview, he literally posted a tweet saying like, hey, 30,000 people die from the flu every year. What's the big, we don't shut down for that. Like, what's uh, yeah. what's the big yeah. deal about this? Uh, when he act, he already knew it was it was much worse than the flu, and this is a president still. He knew it was at least five times worse than the flu. I don't know if you do a little back of the envelope, five times whatever thirty thousand gets you pretty close to where we are right now. So, I mean, it's kind of amazing that this idiot was out there and made claims about the virus that weren't true. That it was going to disappear. That we had we had kicked it that there was no cases in the u.s that there were only 15 cases and it was all going to disappear soon um you know meanwhile not suggesting any kind of distancing or anything like that uh mm -hmm. not putting the you know dragging his feet every step of the way even on his favorite thing shutting down borders he dragged his feet every step on the way every step of the way and he had to have his staff beg him to close down uh borders uh to to shut down travel from europe and uh china before that um so i mean it's 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 not surprising to anybody who's been paying attention another little tidbit of keeping this in time is this was literally two days after he was acquitted by every single republican <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for after being impeached for being uh you know manifestly unfit for the job so uh, you know, obviously, he immediately turned around and proved once again that he's manifestly unfit for the job. Yeah. Congratulations, um, Susan Collins. You really taught him a lesson. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, one of the benefits we have here is that, as as you mentioned, Daniel, um, he uh, Bob Woodward did record this. Uh, it is on the record. So if you have that handy, do you mind playing a clip of, of one of the interviews? I'm going to go ahead and play the... February 7th one. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape, but, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it, it, goes, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. 
And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%, you know, so this is deadly stuff. Yeah. So the yeah. He, there he says, he fully acknowledges this is more deadly, more contagious than the flu. Airborne, and this is before the WHO was even saying that was airborne. So this was very early on. Um, yeah. He was getting apparently getting this information directly from President Xi of China. Numerous instances after this, comparing it directly to the flu, saying, oh, it's just the flu. It's just going to go away. Uh, remember when he said, oh, yeah, people, they're, they're going to work uh, where he maybe he didn't say people should go to work, but su subtly suggested that it might be OK if you just kept going to work while you had COVID <laughs> and yeah. you would just recover from it. Um, that was still ahead. This particular clip is where he pretty much admits and we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards, but where he pretty much admits to downplaying uh, the, the virus for the purpose of, quote unquote, not creating a panic. Uh, but yeah, if you don't mind, Daniel, let's let's just go ahead and play the clip. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old old yeah, exactly. young people. To plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think Bob really, to be honest with you, sure, I want you to I be. wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down Yes, sir. because I don't want to create a panic. So that was from March 19th. And yeah, he said, I've been, I've been playing it down. I always want to play it down. He says, oh, I don't want to create a panic, which, you know, famously Trump always trying to calm people down, never trying yeah. to make people panic. <laughs> yeah. I'm and that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, essentially what I was going to mention, because now what you're seeing is that his supporters or even some of the anti former anti-Trumpers now turned Trumpers uh, are defending this particular um, commentary of saying, hey, it's presidential, right? Like it's presidential that he does not want to incite a panic or or, or cause chaos. So he was trying to play it down just so people can, can be orderly. But I mean, two things about that, though. The first one is what you mentioned, Daniel, that this is Donald Trump. He does not have a history. This is the guy that uses fear and chaos and disorder whenever he can. Uh, you know, he does it when it comes to... Today, between tweets about how he was trying to keep people calm, he was like, Antifa is coming over and they're going to knock over your lawn ornaments and they're going to pee in your bird bath and he's doing this as he's saying i was trying to keep people calm about covid so yeah it's like oh yeah now this is the one where you just decide <laughs> that you're just gonna downplay it uh, for for uh uh for to make sure that everything's orderly you don't do that with the protests you don't do that with the voting <laughs> with with mailing voting oh but you're gonna do it with this so that that's a hard argument to buy but furthermore like it's not a hard argument to buy it's complete bullshit yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't even think we should entertain it as a plausible argument i mean he's basically being a fear monger no matter what he does like especially with the covid stuff i mean even if he didn't say anything early on a lot of panic is still going through this 
um, are going with this. Because he didn't do anything to reduce panic. Uh, because instead of coming out and saying, this is a terrible thing and we're going to have to take it seriously, he said, uh, it's fake. <laughs> and then proceeded to just fuck it up and kill 200,000 people and create a massive economic recession that went along with it. None of that reduced panic. All of it increased panic. Um, yeah. If he had come out and stated at the beginning, and you know the, you know that March nineteenth uh, call referenced, oh Trump's becoming more serious. I don't you remember? I don't know if you guys remember, but early in early March, I think Fauci told Trump that it could be three hundred thousand people dead, and I think like he showed up and randomly changed his tone, and the media was like, oh he changed his tone. Um, it was complete bullshit. It happened for like ten minutes, and then you know the next day he was. Uh, talking about how we needed to quote-unquote liberate the cities <laughs> which meant uh to eliminate all the public health <laughs> all the things that they were doing um as far as public health uh goes to to quell the coronavirus um and he was literally going out there and tweeting you know in all caps liberate michigan or whatever um, and this was after quote-unquote he changed his tone in march and was taking it seriously um, so the question, Sam, I think you asked is, would it have made a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think the only reason we're kind of entertaining this is because we we don't have a, a, a president that's fit to lead. Because the real dilemma for an actual president, for, for somebody that uh, would take the office seriously, is how do you convince your uh, citizens to not panic while taking this seriously? Right, like that's that's the real dilemma that a, a real president would would actually want to face or or would be required to face. Um, Donald Trump did neither of those. Um, he he did not, uh, or at least he did not message that. He he messaged that this should not be taken seriously. Uh, but then his actual uh, actions, uh, the, the way he you know said that we were just going to close down everything coming from Europe, and it, it was believed it was also like commodities and goods, and so there was <laughs> there was like the market tanked, and then people panicked, and and lots of people just started traveling from Europe to America immediately because they thought they were going to be left in Europe. So oh, yeah, those pictures of hundreds and thousands of people getting stranded at airports because they didn't know what the fuck was going on right in the midst of a pandemic all crowded together in the airports. Yeah, that was the panic that he was <laughs> that's the panic that he was uh, apparently trying to downplay. Um it, it didn't work and you know, I, and I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, what would it happen if if uh Bob Woodward, Woodward had released this. Um, I think that's a fair question. I think I think Trump would have reacted kind of like he's reacting now, which is to say, well, it's fake news, <laughs> and yeah. you know, not never mind that he's on tape. It's fake news, and it doesn't mean what it, they're saying it means. And he probably would have continued to downplay it. I'm I'm going to be honest. I think he would have continued to downplay it. And I think Republicans would have continued to downplay it. And as soon as it got serious again, he would say, well, no one could have seen this. He would have said what he said, which is nobody could have seen this coming. And then people would point to the Bob Woodward stuff and he'd, I don't know, it would just go around. And so, I mean, Gus, don't you, couldn't you see that exact thing happening? Like it, like it could have come out, but I mean, would it have made that much of a difference? I think they would have still continued on this path of of downplaying the shit out of it. And, and I mean, I think whether 
this would have made a difference if it came out sooner is it is a hard question to answer because you don't know with this with this um moron of a president we have i believe i i I buy your argument, Daniel. I think he would have continued to downplay it if, if I really had to guess. I do think in terms of like an ethical dilemma um, placed on Bob Woodward, like if you find this, if, if you found out about this back in February or March, do you feel obligated to, to release it just to inform the public? Uh, whether whatever happens, uh, uh, however the president acts or however his supporters acts is, is irrelevant. It, it's more like, is it more, more, are you morally responsible holding this information back from, from um, um, the people until now? Or should you have um, released it back then? Um, I, I, that's a tough question for me to answer. I'm not entirely sure if, if that's that's an argument I wanna go into because I think the main thing here is Bob Woodward is not the president of the United States. Right. Ultimately, no, like no. <laughs> the, the responsibility ends uh, with Donald Trump. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of people. Yeah, that has been the reaction. I saw uh, we were talking about this clip before the show started where Trump was like, if this was so important, then Woodward should have informed the authorities. <laughs> it made me laugh. So <laughs> Which hard. is insane. Because it's he's insane. literally the president of the United States. He's like the highest authority. And he's like, yeah, Woodward should have like called the police or something. Yeah. <laughs> if oh. he had this vital information, why didn't he let the people know? <laughs> yeah. So, so do you guys remember back in the 2016 election? I mean, this seems very similar to what, what they're doing now about the Bob Woodward thing. I don't remember... Who Trump was with? It was Billy. Billy Bush. Billy Bush. You're talking about the, uh, the Access Hollywood tape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. That's. I mean it pissed. It pissed me off, and I think it pissed off a lot of, not ignorant people, I guess. But it still played it off as if it was nothing. Yeah, I mean, that goes into the whole, like, uh, are we in the nothing matters universe where these things can just happen and there's absolutely no consequence or repercussions for it? Like, is this still going to lead to Donald Trump being reelected, even though in any other universe having this on tape would lead to any president being either just ousted by voting or being impeached or something like that in, in, a, in a rational society? Um, I see your point that it kind of echoes that, uh, Sam, because back then you thought he's like, oh, that, that's it, right? Like this, this tape yeah. is it. Like it's it, this is this is a man basically admitting on tape that he just violates women uh, without hesitating. So that that should be it, and it wasn't. So I, I don't want to say this is this is it. I'm not going to say here. Oh, that's it. Trump is Trump is doomed. But you know, I again, this is, this is just like I'm, I'm just looking at. Just to give you an idea of what a normal president might have done, there was a Columbia University School of Public Health study released recently that said starting social distancing one week earlier. The thing about pandemics is that the science of it, they know kind of what to do to stop the to stop diseases from spreading, but it's hard. You have to do it before the disease starts manifesting itself because once it starts manifesting itself, it's already spread and it's too late. You have to cut it off before it starts spreading. Folks that run our government in the GOP are idiots and they're not going to do anything until everybody is, until they're already, everything is already on fire. And now they have to do something. Um, so that's, that's why I'm talking about the, the science behind uh, the epidemiological science behind pandemics 
the earlier you start, the better it is. And it's just, you know, it goes back to flattening the curve. The sooner you can flatten the curve, the more lives you're going to save. So anyway, this Columbia University study came out and said if we had started social distancing a week earlier, it would have saved 36,000 lives. And if we had started two weeks earlier, it would have saved 56,000 lives, uh, which is amazing. It's a full fourth of the number of people who have died. And that it's just literally like, yeah. did should we start taking this seriously earlier um which uh we failed to do i mean i've i've heard that it might even continue into 2021 which is really scary like if this just keeps going and well i think it will i I was thinking about this the other day like putting aside for a minute the the horrible the deaths and the sickness and that can you think of a president (laughs) who is in recent history has been more directly responsible for just literal not maybe not literally but erasing an entire year of our lives <laughs> making it sort of this empty year that doesn't really count for anything uh because everything kind of had to be put on hold again if he had done if he had done something in the beginning probably could have flattened the curve earlier and stopped some of this but uh you know it's uh six months later and we're still losing a thousand people a day and you turn on you turn on conservative news and it's a different universe there is no covid uh everything is great everything's restarting uh the president has defeated covid um football's back football's back yeah i mean i think to answer your uh to answer your question daniel about has there been a president that's been actively responsible for erasing a like one year of our lives, essentially. Uh, the answer is no, there hasn't. Not directly really, responsible. There not, not, as, did. not directly yeah. responsible, right? Like other presidents felt but faced crises and maybe mishandling uh, mishandled them very poorly. Um, you know, obviously the Bush administration made some real mistakes in, in terms of uh, their foreign policy. Um, but in terms of just like the lives of American citizens uh in, in, you know in uh continental america just having their lives just upended the way they were like no there was there was no other president and donald trump is directly responsible for it like there were there are actions that he could have taken should have taken that would have made this situation a lot better and now we only we know that not only was he just like ignorantly downplaying this virus just pretending that he knew best he he actually knew the facts and he knew how deadly this was, and he purposely decided to ignore that. And he led 190,000 Americans to their deaths. I mean, he 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 led that march. I don't think there's any way to describe it other than that. And it should be damning, and it should be the end of of him as as president. He should be in jail. <laughs> I mean, like this he he this this is an impeachable offense. This is everything, but. Again, right I, now, this isn't in the hands of voters. And it's amazing because it's sort of like, I mean, I, I feel like Trump, he's always like, who could have seen this coming? It's like, all of us, yeah. <laughs> when he was elected, we were like, this dude is a, is an idiot and irresponsible, <laughs> murderous, uh, egotistical, narcissist, scam artist, used car salesman, fascist, all of this stuff. I mean, maybe we wouldn't have predicted something 
this dot like i i don't think anyone would have been like well yeah in a couple of years we're gonna, for a whole year everybody's gonna be stuck inside because of a massive pandemic i mean we had low expectations trump but goddamn man yeah at least when it comes to this pandemic i thought trump was gonna do better than this um i thought he would at least listen to one or two of his advisors just say he's out of his league and just kind of let them handle it and he can go golfing or something and we would just get Congress to act, and he would just say, hey, yeah, wear a mask and socially distance. Uh, I'm out of here. But he couldn't even do that. I mean, he 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 made the situation worse. And as president of the United States, that's the worst thing you, you could say about a, a president. You know, he, he was an agent on, acting on behalf of the virus. Yes. Uh, it's just so maddening about everything else that's going on. You're exactly right. I don't know which of you said it, but we did see this coming, you know, this this terrible, I mean, maybe not, we saw this fascism coming for sure. Some of the things that came out of the tapes, just, just real quick, so far at least, uh, <laughs> Woodward asked him about the notion of white privilege and Trump responded, no, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? Wow, just listen to you. Wow, no, I don't. I don't feel that at all. Um, he got pissed off because he thought black people were not gracious enough for all that he's done for them. He bragged about a secret nuclear weapon program that was apparently very, very secret. He talked about how Kim Jong Un uh, is the only one. No, sorry, I'm the only one that Kim Jong Un smiles with, uh, which is a very strange That's thing creepy, to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. Also, he also said that Kim Jong-un considered Obama to be an asshole, which, you know. I mean, doesn't everyone? <laughs> and he said that he's not sure why. Uh, this is what he said. Quote, it's funny, the relationships I have, the tougher and meaner they are, the better I get along with them. You know, explain that to me someday, okay? <laughs> because he gets along with, like, the most, he gets along with the worst autocrats in the world. <laughs> Those are the people he connects with. Which should scare any American, really. But it doesn't. Oh, oh! He also said, "I saved his ass." Talking about Mohammed bin Salman because he managed to help him avoid accountability for the murder of U.S. journalist uh, Khashoggi uh, by yeah. the murderous Saudi regime. He he bragged about how he saved him and helped him. Yeah, what uh, what a piece of shit. To be fair, he did be. say he did say he thinks he's innocent, which I think everybody knows is not. <laughs> it's not true. Trump's own intelligence networks say that MBS was it was intimately involved in the murder of of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, I mean it's it's, and I'm sure I, the book's not out, right? Like it's still I, I know it's in the hands of uh, media figures, but um, it I'm is. And I've read some reviews, and I did read the last line of the book, which I think is kind of humorous and very understated. The last line of the book says, quote, when his performance as president is taken in its entirety, I can only reach one conclusion. Trump is the wrong man for the job. <laughs> cool. Well, so glad we know that now. Understand. <laughs> He's like, Trump is not qualified. <laughs> wow. Very. Give him a C minus. Uh, well, thanks for that, Bob Woodward. We, we, we really needed to, to, to know that uh, piece of information. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, that's. That's a uh, um, because, folks, as you, you look at your calendars, uh, I'm sure you know 
what's what is quickly approaching it is september the 10th uh we are less than two months before election day um so what that means here is that you know we're, we're starting to get into the point where we're in the polls maybe matter territory the, there, there's still time left to, for for things to change there's there's uh uh, you know, obviously, we we all remember 2016, where it's very likely that the election may have been decided by the Comey letter, which came out what like ten days before the election. So it's it's not to say that where the race stands now is it's where it's going to be in November, but it's worth looking over uh, now that we're in this punditry world to see. If there's any kind of convention bounces, if there's any kind of effects uh, going on after the protest in Wisconsin, uh, and the answer is kind of a mixed bag. You know, when it comes to national polling right now, Joe Biden didn't really see a whole lot of mm, changes. He he is a according to the Real Clear Politics average. Again, Real Clear Politics is a website that. Um, basically is a depository for polls and really terrible articles. Uh, but I go there mainly for, for the polls. Uh, but in the national average, he's, he's, uh, he's up by 7.5%, which Biden is. Biden is. Joe Biden is up by 7.5%, yeah. which is a healthy lead nationally. Obviously, for whatever reason, we don't decide our president based on the popular vote. We decide it based on the electoral college. Which, if you look at that, he Joe Biden is in the lead uh, in in the states he needs to to win right now. But I'm just going to go over some states that Hillary Clinton lost that Joe Biden is currently ahead of. And I'll start with the states where he's doing the worst to the best. And the worst right now is Florida, where he's up by 1.2 percent, so almost tied. Uh, in North Carolina, Joe Biden is up by 1.5 percent. In uh, in I'm sorry, in Pennsylvania, he's up by 4.3 percent. In Michigan, he's up by 5 percent. In Wisconsin, he's up by 6.4 percent. Um, these are all, and I'm sorry, also in Arizona, he's up by 5.7 percent. These are all states that Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won. Joe Biden does not need to win all of these states to get to 270 electoral votes, assuming he picks up all the other states that Hillary Clinton won. He just needs some of them. So it's encouraging to see him in the lead. But again, some of these are very, very small leads. And yeah, Daniel, as you mentioned, the one in Florida is, is one that kind of stands out because it's at 1.2. Uh, I actually saw that um, Nate Silver quoted this on Twitter, I believe. But before the convention, uh, Joe Biden was up by more than five points. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to, what what caused this. Uh, yeah, the polling polls, average? The base, yes, the based on the polling average, oh, he was up by five. Um, I don't know, though. Like To me, this 1.2% makes a whole lot more sense historically than the 5% lead. I mean, that Florida, like, notoriously, uh, is always usually within the 2% um, popular vote there in, in that state. So this makes sense on paper, but... Uh, I'm not sure if, there, if this is just kind of like a quote-unquote reversion to the mean or if it's like an actual movement that was caused by something. Maybe that Cuban dude that that spoke in the uh, Republican convention made an impact. I don't know. Oh, who, uh, call, who called Biden Fidel Castro. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. And, and uh, yeah, it's one thing um, that you mentioned, Daniel, that polling is showing is that Do uh, Joe Biden is doing 
uh, is underperforming Hillary Clinton with Hispanics. Um, and I believe even with the, oh no, I think with the African-American community, he's staying pretty pretty much on par, but with Hispanics, he is underperforming Clinton, which could cause him problems in Florida, Arizona, Nevada. I mean, he's he's polling well in Arizona. Hispanics are, are saying they're voting for Trump in these polls or? Yeah, um, and wow. at least in Florida. And keep in mind, Florida's Hispanic community is different than what you're going to say more in like Texas, uh, yeah, in Arizona or Nevada. It's more conservative. It's more, um, Cuba, it's a yeah. higher population of Cuban Americans, whereas in other states, you're probably going to see a higher percentage of uh, Mexican Americans. Um, so different backgrounds. Um, so it's it's a different um, ball game altogether. But yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is doing considerably well. Um, and, and now the, the caveat or the asterisk is that According to these polls, again, this is all under the whole realm that you actually believe the polls, um, which I think is relevant. (laughs) I think it's relevant data, but it isn't in perfect science. But Joe Biden is doing better among working class whites than Hillary Clinton is. So it's that's kind of the trade off. And that's probably why you even though Joe Biden is underperforming with Hispanics, he's still showing a lead in these states. Um, but I think the main point that I actually kind of wanted to go over is that, you know, last week we there was a lot of punditry talk um, about the protest in Kenosha. A lot of people certain that if Joe Biden doesn't come out and forcefully um, call out uh, Antifa and, and uh, Black Lives Matter, he, he was doomed. Um, there's been basically no change in Wisconsin in terms of his lead there. Um, he's he's up by 6.4%, I believe. In fact, it might have gone up slightly, but it was still it's still within that well, realm of being because That's 6. because he, he ran out there and condemned violence, or else he'd be tanking. We all know that. Yeah, so. that one speech, and then and like a Monday morning is what uh, changed everything, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. That did it. But I... The reason I wanted to kind of bring this up is that I'm sure we're all getting quite a bit of like 2016 vibes, right? Where like it's, and you mentioned it too, uh, Sam, earlier with like kind of how the Bob Woodward uh, tape release kind of mimics the, what's his name? Billy Bush? Who cares? The Access Hollywood tape. Yeah, the Access Hollywood tape. Um, and again, just kind of like 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton was showing leads in, in a lot of these uh, uh, swing state votes, especially in the Midwestern states like Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin. So I think there's always going to be nerves going on to this. Like, I, And even though I try to play like, hey, these are the facts, this is the data, Like, I still kind of fall for it. Like when I see a Florida poll where I show where shows Trump and Biden tied, like my heart sinks. And yet when I see like a Texas poll showing the same thing, I'm like, oh, Joe Biden's never going to win Texas. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) Donald Trump's got that in the bag. So uh, I don't know. And I should mention one of these states that that Hillary Clinton did win that could be a pickup for Donald Trump is probably Minnesota. Um, He is up by... Oh, well, actually, it just got updated. It was 3.7% yesterday, but now it's at 5.0%. I, I think there was just a new poll that came out today. It, it was, oh, wow. it was uh, very bump. close in 2016, so I would not be surprised to see it flip. I think it's the one, maybe that and maybe Nevada is the one state that um, 
Donald Trump could pick up that he didn't pick up in 2016. But other than that, I, I think he's probably going to play defense. I'm not going to make, again, a prediction about who actually going to, is going to win the election. I'm not going down that route. But I do think that we are going to go into an election night almost with like the same thing that we saw in 2016, where it feels like Joe Biden has like a 70, 60 to 70% chance to win. And then Donald Trump is like a 30 and we're all going to have those nerves and keep in mind all these models are, well, obviously the polls, but even like the 538 models and stuff, they're under the assumption that we're in like a well-functioning society where the president of the United States is not actively trying to sabotage the election, which <laughs> that's, that might be optimistic. <laughs> Yeah. But I don't know. What any any thoughts you guys have regarding these numbers or anything that you're feeling? Anything you're feeling anxious about or positive about? Daniel, let's let's start with you. I feel anxious about everything and positive about nothing. <laughs> I mean, I it's just these margins in the swing states are just I just feel like I can see them just evaporating. Yeah. I can f- viscerally feel them evaporating like I did on in 2016 uh when I saw Florida fall. Are you talking about the needle, the famous New York? Well, Times no, needle? it was more just it was more just when people were like, wow, Trump's getting a lot more votes in these rural places than we thought he would. And I was wow. like, well, that's going to be a knock on thing. That's going to happen in every other state. He's going to get more rural votes than we thought he would. So all those poll numbers are going to be wrong. And just having PTSD flashbacks to that right now, like I, I'm just looking at these and thinking of them like evaporating on election day. Uh, no. just because the I, mo- models are wrong or the likely, you know, I know they're using different likely motor, voter screens now than they were. Um, and 2016, again, was within, I, th- I believe, within the margin of error in all the polls. But yeah, I, I, I just don't feel confident about uh, Biden's chances. Um, I will say, I think the Joe Biden campaign would probably prefer you not feeling that confident uh, or anybody. I think <laughs> oh, they would prefer, yeah, they would prefer, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible for our mental health, but I think they would prefer you to be a little bit more engaged and then kind of like not take anything for granted and obviously go out and vote or maybe even like donate or volunteer. Um, so that could be a positive, uh, you know, I'm just trying to cheer you up. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. But uh, Sam, what about you? Like what, how are you feeling? I feel very anxious as well. No matter what happens on election night, I'm either going to be drinking a $15 or 15-year scotch or spraying champagne everywhere on the floor and drinking that. And the champagne is when Trump wins and scotch is when Biden wins. Well, scotch is better than champagne. Yeah. I can't take any chances on this i mean i i can't just like be like oh it'll be fine you know i mean the the only thing i would say about these polling numbers and kind of to tie it back maybe to some of the stuff we were talking earlier is that i know we we freak out about these things and again i'm not saying i'm not predicting anything but what i will say is an incumbent should probably be in a better position than this especially shortly after a, a convention um i'm not i'm not sure maybe this is reflective of the fact that 
maybe some things do matter, you know, maybe to the controversy, like the, the mishandling of the pandemic, uh, the fact that Donald Trump has uh, really sowed more chaos regarding the uh, social unrest and the, and the protest than, than actually calm things down. Uh, obviously, none of these polls reflected the Woodward thing because that just came out uh, very recently. Uh, but again, uh, just another example of, of, of really the, the Trump campaign being on the de defensive rather than trying to hit Joe Biden. Um, because, I mean, still, at the end of the day, this is uh, a challenger leading uh, almost every single swing state and being up by over seven points in the national polling average, which historically speaking, again, it's early, it's September, but historically speaking, it's abnormal to see that. I just wanted to say one more thing that really scares me is how um, abruptly the Republicans are cheating American people in states where they're, we talked about this like a couple episodes ago with the Voting Rights Act, but they're just yeah, denying I mean, they're people actively, the right to um, vote. Suppressing and, the vote, and they're, they're using this pandemic as, as an excuse to, to try to, you know, play, play with the election. Uh, I, I have no doubt in my mind. It's multiple headlines a day, too. What it, you just sent me one recently, Gus, with the Wisconsin Supreme Court holding up the mail-in ballots because mm -hmm. they are saying there's a conservative Supreme Court and they're saying, well, we need to figure out who's on the ballot so none of them can be mailed out yet. <laughs> so they're yeah. just holding them until they can, until they can uh, clarify who's on the ballot. But what does that even mean? I'm not sure, but the the consistent theme you get through all of these decisions is that they're trying to suppress the vote. They would prefer if people didn't vote. Uh, Gus, I don't know if you wanted me to talk about the financing thing. Yeah, I was actually kind of mentioning that because in terms of uh, an incumbent, you know, usually an incumbent is the um, stronger fundraiser. Uh, they obviously have the power of the uh, office. Technically speaking, they shouldn't use that. But obviously, when you're the incumbent, it's going to be a little bit easier for you to donate or for you to um, fundraise, I'm sorry, money. Uh, that's... You know, in terms of the arms race, the the money uh, fundraising race, uh, you know, Joe Biden is actually doing considerably better, at least as far as the August numbers go. Um, he raised uh, around three hundred and sixty four million um, dollars that month, which is an insane number. Um, Trump did very well as well. He he raised two hundred and ten million dollars for that month, which in any other case would have been a very impressive number. But he actually trails. Um, Joe Biden by about $154 million for that month alone. $154 million is a lot of money, last time I checked. Um, so this, again, I don't know if this is just like what Trump's craziness is, 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 uh, is just inspiring, um, whether, you know, obviously large donors, but a whole lot of small donors. I'm not certain, but you normally don't see such a gap between uh, the challenger and the incumbent, where the challenger is actually the one ahead. Uh, but also an interesting story is how Donald Trump and his campaign has been managing um, his uh, fundraising uh, contributions. Yeah, so there's a New York Times story called How Trump's Billion Dollar Campaign Lost Its Cash Advantage by Shane Goldmacher. And actually, when I reread this, I thought to myself, uh, this is such a post-Trump New York Times story because they're writing this almost like a little bit of a soft focus piece, a horse race piece about oh, funding. Um, and, there's a, and, and buried within this piece is that the Trump camp 
managed to make a billion dollars evaporate in a year and a half. But but that's not what the, I I mean they do put it up how Trump's billion dollar campaign lost its cash cash advantage. You know, I'm not telling the New York Times journalists how to do their job, but there's some stuff in here I feel like they maybe should have dug in a little more on. Um but the the article goes through and says uh talks about how Trump had raised uh 1.1 billion uh, from the beginning of 2019 through July and managed to spend 800 million of that, (laughs) uh, which is a a lot. Um, And now, uh, you know, 60 days before the election, uh, some of the people in the campaign are worried about a a cash crunch. the entire article, so the, this kind of happened under Brad Parscale, who was Trump's uh, campaign manager originally for the 2020 run-up, um, and he was uh, recently uh, replaced by Bill Stepien. Uh, I was just going to say, really, the, uh, the Tulsa rally mastermind, Brad Parscale. Oh, did he? Bill Stepien? Yeah. I didn't realize no, that. No, no, uh, Brad, Brad Parscale was the one, and that's... Oh, like, after yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Bill Stepien was involved in, in Bridgegate, which is another funny... New York, New Jersey, Chris Christie story, but yeah. I, don't, I won't get off on a tangent on that. But uh, so, so they kept they keep going in this article. They keep going to Parscale to ask him what the hell happened, and Parscale keeps giving the same answer, which is basically like some version of he won't give any specifics on each one of the spending items they ask him about. But he's like, we built a great operation, and and he always manages to slide in there, which I think is really funny. He's like, I'm so proud of the operation we built. And also, every bit piece of spending was approved by the family every step of the way, which is, <laughs> he just he just happens to just slide in there that the family was approving all of his spending. Um, yeah. Because uh, when, as the New York Times went through this, they realized that they were spending a lot of money. Um, they spent $100 million dollars. Uh, on a television advertising blitz in the run-up to the convention, uh, which is not, you know, not the worst idea in the world. Uh, they also assembled a big and well-paid staff and housed them it um, at a well-appointed office in the Virginia suburbs. Um, they had outsized legal bills. Uh, one of the biggest and funniest to me uh, spending was Trump spent $11 million on a 30-second Super Bowl ad because Michael Bloomberg did that, uh, which cracks me the hell up. And it also cracked me up because when I read this, I thought to myself, oh, uh, well, I guess we'll see how it works out when the Super Bowl happens. And then I was like, oh, wait, that that's they're talking about last year. They're talking about, they're talking about yeah. eight months ago. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't think it uh, I don't think it did very good. Um, what else have they, they've hired highly paid RNC consultants. Mr. Trump's former bodyguard is being paid more than half a million dollars by the RNC. They've spent 200,000. Um, I'm not sure, actually. Um, probably something important. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh they spent two hundred thousand dollars for planes to pull aerial banners. I, ugh. Yeah, um, and of... they paid a hundred. Go ahead. No, I just think that really that's that's what you call like targeting marketing, like spending <laughs> aerial banners. Well, like Trump <laughs> did research, and they realized that a lot of his potential voters uh, spend all day just standing outside, staring up into the sky. <laughs> yeah. So they <laughs> classic Trumpers. Um, uh let's see they spent 110 dollars uh to buy magnetic pouches 
to put people's cell phones in so that nothing would ever leak of you know because nothing ever leaks out of the trump administration yeah, no uh, oh and anyway they like yeah. spent one hundred ten thousand dollars on these pouches and then trump just calls up bob woodward <laughs> yeah and here is a classic example of the new york times burying the lead uh which is about paragraph 20 of this a Republican strategist show is quoted as saying, oh, "Oh, yeah. The reason they spent one billion, the reason that they're spending like fucking idiots, is because they've been running this campaign for four years straight. Which is, it's a little bit of a no shit moment, and that campaigns are incredibly expensive. And Trump restarted his campaign immediately after he was elected. Uh, so of course, all of this money is being um, burned away in this this never ending campaign. And there's one more bury the lead." quote from this article that i would like to read okay so it was almost 280 million is being funneled into an llc that, that the new york times really couldn't figure out uh anything about except that uh it was laura trump eric trump's wife and uh uh donald trump's uh girlfriend or maybe fiance now the one who screamed a lot at the rnc are both collecting salary from this organization so again new york times buried the lead they put in paragraph 50 about it, a republican linked llc that siphoned away a quarter of a billion dollars and just into the ether and nobody nobody's quite sure where the money went uh the new york times does not seem to either they can't figure it out um and that's because you know if you're an llc you might be able to uh, get away with uh, with uh, not putting a lot of that stuff into the public record, um, or they didn't try for whatever reason. But um, right. again, you know, if I had written this article, I might have started with that and said, called it, you know, how the Trump campaign stole a quarter of a billion dollars or siphoned it away or something like that. But oh, you know, nepotism never sells. Yeah, yeah. It, but yeah, I mean, it, it really is like a both sides kind of thing, right? I mean, it is yeah. like. We're treating this as a horse race. Well, it is. They're, they're, they're treating it as a horse race article, even though it's, it's you know, a billion dollars of donor money just being sort of burned away. You know, I didn't touch on this, but it's also, you know, another chunk of that money was funneled directly back into Trump's pocket via his businesses. Another $39 million was funneled right back into Parscale's pocket through his uh, consultancy firms. Nobody ever said that uh, political campaigns were the most honest work, but this is this is a new level of, of uh, sort of corruption, and I, it just kind of bothered the hell out of me that the New York Times downplayed it to a certain extent um, by treating it as like a, well, Biden's raising more money now kind of story instead of a, hey, why do they keep funneling millions and billions of dollars of donor money off into these strange LLCs and we never see them again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you would think as in terms of investigating reporting that that would be by far the biggest story to, to follow. And by far the, the, it should very much be the uh, headline and not a statement buried 20 paragraphs. Are they spending a million dollars in ads in DC? <laughs> Which uh, yeah. which was like an eighty nine percent Democratic precinct. So, so Donald Trump can see him and kind of nod approvingly. That's, that's so, so reason. weird. Yeah. That's so weird. But I yes, mean, this it is. is. What other reason is there? Again, yeah. I don't know if there's 
there's probably no justice or logic in this world anymore. But if we, if we were just to objectively look at this, like obviously there's a terrible corruption and really, yes, you're right, Daniel, the New York Times should be emphasizing on that more. But uh, even if you just talk about the campaign, like this, the Trump campaign has not been impressive. Um, they've, they've not, as an incumbency campaign, they have not had a great strategy. Uh, I really actually think even their advertising has been a lot meeker and, and mild than I really was expecting it to be. Uh, it's not very effective. And even now they're the fundraising, which again, should be the main advantage of an incumbent presidency. It seems like they're giving that up to seeding that ground to, to the Biden campaign. I, again, we, we live in a strange universe and he, all of this could happen. He did get outspent back in 2016 and he still won. So that does, that does not set anything in stone, but what a shitty campaign. Yeah. But in 2016, the media gave him like free, free, yeah. um, free videos on him or free information. Yeah, It's not a one-to-one. You know, and and I think you know, especially now the biggest difference is uh, Donald Trump is not a wait and see candidate or like let's let's try it out candidate. We know who he is. We've had four years of, of him as president. People should be able to easily make up their minds whether they want four four more. But I mean, in terms of how that's going to decide the outcome, we're just going to have to watch and see. Um, so boy, we're kind of short on time here, guys. So I'm going to call an audible here. I'll, I'll ask you guys what we have two things. We, we can either go to the Fallwell story or do you guys prefer sharing, uh, just some things that you've been watching or reading lately? I can summarize the Fallwell story. Fallwell liked to watch his wife get fucked by another dude and jerk off. Cool. And then Michael Cohen, Trump's shitty lawyer, got pictures of that. And maybe, uh, probably extorted them <laughs> into endorsing Trump and potentially uh, sliding him into victory. <laughs> uh, so that's a really funny story. Yeah, and you know, I don't like to king shame, but if I'm gonna king shame anybody, <laughs> it's Jerry fucking Falwell. So yeah, man, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, so. Let's just go ahead and move on to our final topic. Again, I know, guys, listeners, that was a lot of Trump talk. Again, this is, we're in a pandemic. We're all, we should at least be spending our majority of time at home. There's not a lot of movies out there in the world. There's not a lot of video games coming out. So uh, I appreciate you guys bearing with us. And, and you know, hopefully you find our, our topics engaging. But we always do want to try to light, end it on a lighter note. So... Uh, Sam, let's start with you. You know, you uh, a couple of episodes back, you mentioned that you're um, watching a new, more lighthearted anime, and it sounds like you've been um, you finished it. Yeah, I'll just give like a quick uh, synopsis, uh, real quick, in case anyone missed the last episode. But it's called Amagi Brilliant Park. Um, it's basically this anime about um, a um, theme park where they're not having a lot of visitors and they're going to be bought out by by uh this uh there's a specific day until unless they get like a certain number of visitors um i won't ruin the ending for you guys but um um i'll just say it anyway not just kidding but um 
what I liked about it is with all this stuff going on in the world and all this stuff going on in our country, it just it just took me away from everything that's bad. Um, it made me laugh. It made me feel like things could get back to normal, but I wasn't that hopeful. <laughs> I really liked it. Uh, if you want an anime that'll just, you know, bring you laughs and smiles during this this crazy time and you know unbelievable time, I suggest you watch it. We also I also saw for the first time Spirited Away a couple of weeks ago. Um, awesome! Finally, our anime expert got <laughs> around to this. He didn't like it. Known. He didn't like it very much. <laughs> That's not true. What, what, did you, what did you think, Sam? Uh, I did like it. It was it was very weird. I think a lot of uh, Miyazaki's films are have a lot of similarities. Um, our two big similarities, I guess, is like the power of friendship and working hard to get where you want to be. I liked it. It was very. I, I might even say creepy, but it was very good. It's not my favorite Miyazaki film, but. It's 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 a good film. It's good anime. Did you did you like feel any of those comparisons to um I'm sorry, what was the yeah, Uzumagi? Amagi um, Brilliant Park. Amagi. Um yes, uh the comparison between them there's not a lot of comparison. They do have very I think the big difference between them is that Amagi Brilliant Park is trying to bring in weird humor. And use it to its advantage. Um, on the opposite side, um, Spirited Away is is just being trying to be weird and, or maybe not weird, but um, unusual will probably be a better word for it. And try. Yeah, and I, I found it a little like unsettling, even. Yeah. Like kind of yeah. creepy. Yeah. And try and make you feel make you feel something. Um, that's that's not a usual thing that you feel or that you do when you watch um, Miyazaki movies. So that's my two cents worth. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed both of them. Um, I'll certainly try. You know, what you mentioned about uh, Amagi, I'm sorry, Brilliant I can never remember Park. the name of Amagi Brilliant Park, about it being a lighthearted um piece of entertainment during these times. I think that makes it very appealing. Very different from the uh, previous anime you mentioned, um, Welcome to NHK, which I think kind of hit you on a more personal level. Oh, but yeah. it, you know, played with anxiety and, and uh, mental health. So it's always good to have uh, a lighter distraction, you know, to, to kind of ease things as, as we deal with the madness. So thank you, Sam. I appreciate the input. Um, so, Daniel, you also wanted to bring up uh, a book that you're currently, very interesting book that you're currently reading that may be getting its, uh, uh, is it a TV adaptation possibly coming soon? Yeah, it's a Netflix, I think they're making it into a series. Um, it's a trilogy of books called the, I believe it's called In Remembrance of Earth Trilogy. The first book in the series is called The Three-Body Problem, uh, which is what they're naming the um, the show after. Uh, much like with, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, they called the whole series Game of Thrones. Um, you know, they gave it to David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, I think, which caused a lot of discourse, as you might who, imagine. Who are the um, uh, Game of Thrones showrunners? 
Right? Sure, yeah. Da- yeah, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss were the, the Game of Thrones showrunners. Um, and, you know, I don't know how everyone else on here feels, but I think they did a good job with Game of Thrones, at least the first, you know, first few seasons. And I think once they got off book, there was a um, tangible drop in quality of the show. Um, I know a lot of people were not happy with the last season and how it ended. I was not uh, ecstatic about it, um, but I did not think it was that far off the sort of path of that show. Um, and, you know, I actually quite, kind of enjoyed it. Um, you know, uh, qual- qualifying that by saying, you know, we did. there was a drop in quality in that show. Um, this is, you know, so so some people are a little worried because this is a... This is a hard sci-fi book. It is, you know, there's a lot of physics. There's a lot of philosophy. It's a Chinese book, uh, originally written in Chinese. You know, the book has footnotes out, up the wazoo, references to Chinese philosophy, Chinese history, Chinese culture, um, and the science is thorny. Um, you know, famously, and uh, you know, maybe not famously, but the end of the first book, I, I, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, um, but the end of the first book has a very hard science ending. <laughs> it's not it's not a very um, classic, you know, traditional cinematic sci-fi ending. Um, it's, it's very hard science. Um, so, you know, people are understandably concerned that uh, Benioff, Weiss are going to take this book. Oh, by the way, this book is uh, written by uh, uh Xing, and I apologize for mispronouncing that, and translated by Ken Liu, and they will be working closely with Benioff and Weiss. Um, and so, you know, I I get it. I understand why people might be afraid that you know some of the some of the nuance might be stripped out of what is really a uh, a very sophisticated and complex book um, in favor of sort of making it dumb, fun, weird sci-fi. Right. Well, let me ask you this, Daniel. Um, This series, is it done? Like, the books? Are they, like, is the series done? The books are done, yeah. I believe the last book was published uh, in 2010. It wasn't translated into English until years later, but, uh, yeah, they're they're all done. So it's not going to run into the... uh... (laughs) The uh, yeah. problem of D and D having to sort of make up the the ending to it. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I think that's a big thing because I would say that you know the the, the Game of Thrones, the show that actually worked within the uh, adaptation of the books that were actually out. That's that's the strongest part of that entire series, and I felt like they actually did do a fairly decent job of obviously making it a mainstream ad- adaptation. But they work with. Uh, George R. R. Martin, and they still, as somebody who who you know listened or I'm sorry, read the books way before the show ever came out, like like I, I always felt it was a very faithful adaptation to it, and it wasn't until they finally got past it where it, they they it really did seem like they were maybe um, out of their league, and they they Hollywooded Hollywood, I I don't know, made it a little it just bit sound like more they were Hollywood. Bored. Yeah. They were bored, and they were just like, ah, we've been doing this for so long, let's just kind of rush through it. And they were kind of frustrated, because they were kind of having to unravel Martin's mess. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, was, He did not that, help them with that. Yeah, that, that show probably most definitely would have been better if 
if they have worked with a complete work of literature that they're adapting and they didn't they they ran out of book material and they had to kind of tell the story with probably like they got like two sheets of paper bought from George R. R. Martin, just probably bullet pointing how the book should end. And that's just not a great way to, to work with that material. So maybe on the bright side, they could do a great job with this if they're working with the uh, the authors from, you know, beginning to end. Yeah, that is, that is, you know, it's one of those situations where I'm like, I'm very willing to sort of give them a chance while at the same time noting that like, in an ideal world, this probably would have been in the hands of, you know, maybe a Chinese American showrunner of some sort, yeah, or somebody with maybe a just point. a little more, a little more. Uh, but that being said, I'm not going to prejudge it. You know, the uh, D and D have done some good stuff, done some not so great stuff. Uh, the Wolverine movie, X Men <laughs> Origins, is it? Yeah, X Men Origins. <laughs> That was written by, I believe, David Benioff. But I, I go back and forth because there's a lot. It is one of the stories where I think they can do a really, they could do a really good job. There, there's this concept in this in the series, and again, I'm not going to spoil anything. Uh, you know, it has to do with it's it's set in China, and I hope that they don't Anglo, Anglo like take this out of China because honestly, I don't even think the story would make sense out of China because it has a lot to do with the Cultural Revolution and and uh things like that which is you know the the maoist attempt to sort of get the right-wing elements out of society um and which involved things like struggle sessions which were these sessions where you know the the leftists the communists would all stand around and scream at people they thought were insufficiently um uh loyal to the communist cause and you know often turn into physical violence um, that's all. These are these are all parts of this book, and and are are very important to the the meaning of the book. Uh, so I would be very frustrated if they sort of took it out of this context and made it star like an American or something. Um, yeah, that 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 would be. I, I'm hoping that they don't do that. Does not seem like they're going to do that. Again, I can't even imagine how they do that because again, this is a very Chinese story you can't it, it, it's just it's hard to imagine it being told it's like trying to imagine Huckleberry Finn not in America <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. compute um sorry I was just gonna say I'm glad you brought that up because obviously I haven't read the book so I, I have no experience with with the story but I wasn't even considering you know with the, the um uh, the issues around race, ethnicity, culture, uh, and how that should uh, be faithfully adapted. When when I was you know talking about when maybe if we should uh, if it might might be in safe hands so long as we're you know those those books are finished and they're working closely with the authors. But you're right. I mean, the, the, it should it should be faithful in all regards, including um, you know in regards to culture and race and ethnicity. I mean, it goes into some deep places about, you know, physics and is what's what's underneath the physics and does that match up with, you know, various philosophies, the, you know, and, and it's all very fascinating, but I'm just hoping they don't sort of dumb it down to, oh, it's weird, freaky sci-fi, uh, you know, that that's my concern. And, and they sort of did take these cultural <laughs> aspects, which really give it, give it its uh, complexity and and make it a, a, a great book. Um, I'm just hoping they don't sort of cut all that out and just make it like, oh, look at this weird sci-fi. Because there's definitely, 
you know, I read the synopsis, uh, you know, I read this book a couple of years back and I read the synopsis in preparation for this and uh, it's got kind of a strange plot and I can definitely see how if you dumb it down, it could turn it into like, I don't know, Ready Player One, something, <laughs> something like very dumbed down and, and very, but I'm hoping that they, you know, I trust them to uh, handle it with a little bit of uh, sophistication. Yeah, here's hoping. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, well, thank you, Daniel. Uh, honestly, I, I, I'm, I look forward to maybe checking out the books, uh, certainly before I even consider um, watching the adaptation. Uh, it, it sounds it sounds like the, the the book material is really where you want to go to first to to really try to get a grasp of everything. But I appreciate that. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that adaptation turns out. Uh, but folks, oh boy, what an episode. Uh, lots to talk about. That One of our longer episodes. So I want to thank Daniel, Sam, thank you so much for, for joining me and, and uh, for being part of this excellent conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you as well. And I also want to thank our listeners. Uh, thank you so much uh, for... Uh, taking the time to to listen to us uh listen to this episode i hope you find uh, all of our topics to be enjoyable and all of our conversations to be at least a little bit insightful so once again from the bottom of my heart thank you so much and i do want to say you know i haven't mentioned this in a long time and i do apologize but i want to let our listeners know that if they have any questions and concerns they can certainly email us uh sam if you don't mind can you mention our email address Sure, it's friendly.reminderthePodcast at gmail.com. That's friendly.reminderthePodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Sam. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much. I I will go ahead and see you next week for yet another episode of Friendly Reminder.